John chapter 13. Holy Spirit, you're the one who leads us in truth. And so we just acknowledge you, open ourselves to you. Ask that you would bring us wisdom and revelation as we were singing. That we'd see more what Jesus is like and the image that we're being changed into. Amen. We've been talking about being a kingdom of priests. Each one of us ministering like Jesus. He actually said, the very works that I do, you'll do. And he wasn't kidding. And we get to do that. But it's everybody. It's not just ministers. It's everyone. We talked about uh, each one being apostolic from the standpoint that we learn something of a love for Jesus and a furthering of the gospel and the kingdom of God through all the nations that falls to every one of us. We've talked about uh, prophetic, a love for the Spirit, intimacy with God, hearing His voice, moving in the supernatural of the Holy Spirit. We have a class called Activate for that very purpose, to learn how to move in the manifestations of the Spirit. It's not on this term, but it will be next year. A couple things that you'll hear about for next year. Now we're going to talk about teaching, which really is a love for the Word. And it's uh, one of the keys. If you look at uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, the order is changed from Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 says that Jesus gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipment of the saints. But in 1 Corinthians 12, it says, first there's apostles, then prophets, then teachers, and then workers of miracles. And it puts teachers following the uh, prophetic. And I think that one talks about the sequence of things being established in a church. The apostolic being a focus on Jesus. The gospel, hearing about him. The prophetic, a love for the Holy Spirit, moving in the anointing and the, uh, the revelation of the Spirit. And thirdly, teaching, a love for the Word, the authority of the Word. John chapter 13, verse 13 it says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. Jesus is actually saying, hey, I'm the teacher. But he had this love and valued the word. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this verse, from verse 17 and 18. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets, which was the scripture at that time. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill for surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or tittle, one little mark, will not by any means pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. And then in chapter 15, in verse 6, he says this, the second half of the verse, Thus you have made the commandment of God, or the word of God, of no effect by your tradition. Verse 9, in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I want to talk about the authority of the word today. Now, most of you are aware of this, but in case you aren't, you're going to hear about it today so that we're very clear where we stand. Let me ask you a question. What makes the Bible the word of God? Mine says, 
Bible. <laughs> Holy Bible. What makes the Bible the Word of God? Is it the fact that it's old? No. I kind of like the idea that the older they are, the more authority we should have. I think that, right, Glenn and I are, are into that one. Is it that older things have more authority? No, it has nothing to do with the fact that it's old. It, what it has to do with is the fact that God's the author. Second Timothy, turn there and read with me from chapter 3. I'm going to start with verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, matter of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance. My persecutions, afflictions. Uh-oh, we don't want to follow that part. <laughs> Why did he include that? Which happened to me at Antioch at, at uh, Iconium and Lystra. What persecutions I do, endured, and out of all of them, and out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Most of the time we just start a little bit farther in this section of Scripture. But I want you to understand the authority of Scripture is in the context of persecution. doesn't mean that it has more authority because we're under persecution. But I'm telling you that we will come under persecution because of the authority of the Word. Lance was telling us uh, the other night that he had heard someone preaching who said that they hadn't read the Bible for 13 years. I think it was 13. Just listen to the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, that's not the kind of teaching you want to sit under. And I'll tell you why. Yes, and all who desire to be, live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of, knowing, that, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Do you understand that he's talking about in the time of deception, it's the Scriptures that will keep you safe. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. A word by inspiration of God, by inspiration in Greek, literally means God breathe. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good word, work. In essence, we're equipped through the word. I charge you, therefore, before God... And the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. He's talking to Timothy, who's a leader, but he's talking to all of us. It's not our ideas that is the word of God. It's not our interpretation. There's something in our culture today that has shifted. If you study literature has shifted in the last 20 years from what did the author intend to what do I feel when I read it? And it's become very subjective. Used to be, what was the intent of the author? What were they actually trying to say? Now it's, how do I feel? What do I think it says? I don't care what you think it says. 
The authority is what God said. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come and is here when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. What makes the Bible the Word of God? The fact that God's the author. He's behind it. It's what He says. It's His revelation of Himself and His ways. The Bible is actually God saying, this is what I'm like. Not us saying what we would like God to be like, but God actually saying, this is what I'm like. This is how I function. It's a wonderful thing. Now, when you understand that, you can understand why the devil wants to destroy the Word of God or deceive us or to distort or dilute the truth in some way so that we don't find out what God's like. A.W. Tozer once said, the most important thing about a person is what they think of when they think of God because we move toward the image of God we have in our mind. And if our image is not accurate, we're not moving toward God. We're moving toward a fantasy. The devil wants to distort, dilute. Genesis 3.1. Go back there and the, the question that he asked Eve that most of you know. Basically, he says, and now the serpent was more cunning than the beast of the field. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Has God really said? That's the distortion. Has God really said? Has God really said that Jesus is the only way? No, no, no. There's many paths. We don't like that idea that it's only one. Has God really said that homosexuality is sin? Has God really said that leaders are servants? Oh no, we like celebrities. Especially if we're a leader. Has God really said that every single person is a minister? No, you can't do that. Devil comes in and says, God didn't really say that. Don't think, who are you to think that you could actually minister like Jesus? Jesus said that. <laughs> The devil wants people to stay in darkness. So the question comes down to, what did God say? Which leads us to the battle for the Bible. So I'm going to get a little bit historical here for a few minutes. If you find that boring, now's the time to check your Facebook or something.
you'll, you'll want to come back later, so don't get too distracted. I want to talk about the, uh, the battle for the Bible, the crisis, what I call the crisis of the early 1900s. Okay, before I get to that, let me kind of set the stage. If you know history, there was a, this period called the Dark Ages, which basically meant that there was no real understanding, education, people were kept in the dark. It was actually the Catholic Church that was behind that. They wouldn't let people read the Bible. It's only the priest who could tell you what the Bible said, that you couldn't talk to God, you had to talk through the priest. It brought to this situation of such darkness that there was a breaking away from that authority of the church. In the northern part of Europe, that breaking away was a returning to the authority of Scripture called the Reformation. But in the southern part of Europe, that breaking away was a returning to Greek philosophy called the Renaissance or Renaissance. How, you, how do you pronounce it here? Renaissance. Renaissance, Renaissance. Who cares? Okay? Just a, a brief look at history. Uh, but by the late 1800s, philosophy or the Renaissance had won out in Western culture. And it created with it a scientific worldview, which basically said there was no supernatural. It was only natural. Aristotle uh, said that only the, what you can know with your five senses is real. It's called Aristotelian empiricism. I like to say that because I just want to impress you with my vocabulary. <laughs> Nobody cares what that means. It just means that there was a scientific world. That was my only time to impress you. <laughs> a scientific worldview that was non-supernatural non culminated in the late 1800s with Darwin's theory of evolution, which basically said if you start with the concept that there's no supernatural, how do we then explain the origins of man? You have to understand the presupposition was there is no supernatural. So we've ruled out that whole side of the argument and now he's created something. The problem was that there were a whole lot of theologians who were influenced by that non-supernatural worldview. So they looked at the Bible and, and they said, if there is no supernatural, then the miracles of the Bible didn't really happen. So there was a German theologian, a guy named Rudolf Bultmann, who decided he would demythologize the Bible. He would rewrite the Bible taking out all the supernatural. Now you think that that's crazy, but it wasn't. What happened is that there was this basic concept that crept into much of theology is that the Bible contains the Word of God rather than that the Bible is the Word of God. There's some of it that's God, but some of it was cultural. Some of it was people's myths. Some of it was, was something else. So we end up with a battle for the Bible. Two things. If it's literally the Word of God, God breathed, then a literal, literal word-for-word -word translation is imperative. What did God say? If it contains the Word of God, then a literal translation isn't necessary. The problem, obvious problem, 
you all see it already, is who decides which part's the Word of God? Who decides which part's cultural or mythology? But once you go away from the authority of the Word and everyone else decides, you end up with all kinds of things. Mary was raised in a Presbyterian church. The Presbyterian church in the U.S. now ordains homosexuals into ministry because they've said that whole part in the Bible about homosexuality isn't actually God's word. But as we saw, Jesus says, all of it is God's word. No part's going to go away. So, which translations are word-for-word translations? I know you're going to ask me. I use the New King James, but the uh, American Standard or New American Standard, the Revised Standard, the uh, English Standard Version are all word-for-word translations, and they're very good ones. There are thought-for-thought translations, which doesn't mean that they're wrong. It just means you need to understand that you can't put all the weight on an individual word because the individual word might, might not be there. I heard a guy preaching a number of years ago. He was actually talking about faith, but he was using a, a scripture and he was talking about that God, uh, that everything we've ever done, that God remembers no more. And it was a scripture and it was in the NIV. And he went on about everything, 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 everything. Say everything for probably five minutes. The problem is everything wasn't in the scripture. It wasn't what God said. It was what a translator said. Now, the concept was still, still right, still with me, but you can't put a whole lot of weight. So what are thought-for-thought translations? The NIV, uh, the Christian Standard Version, Good News Translations, things like that are thought-for-thought. Just so you're aware, please understand, I'm not saying that they're terrible. I'm saying that you need to be careful how much weight you put on an individual word. I was asked once to uh, look at and critique a book that a friend of mine was writing about do Christians have a, uh, a sin nature? And the whole book was because in the NIV, the word flesh in the Greek is translated sin nature. Do Christians have flesh? Case closed. But this guy wrote a whole book about arguing that once you're saved, you can't have a sin nature because the Spirit of God can't coexist with sin. But it was all based on a a word that's actually not there in what God said. It's a translation done by man. You know how translations work. There's a word in the original language and... You try and find the best word that matches up with it in the language you're translating to. Sometimes they don't match exactly because all languages have different amounts of words. How many of you know that? Let me give you an illustration. In English, there's about 500,000 words in the English language and about another 500,000 technical terms. In Indonesian... There's only about 5,000 words. 
So how do you communicate very abstract things from English into Indonesian? You've got to paint word pictures because there's no word that just matches up. Most languages have between 80 and 100,000 words. French, for instance, Hebrew, 80, between 80 and 100,000 words. And so what happens is that you find the word that best matches. And sometimes you find a word that just kind of slightly matches. Now, why would you go for a lesser match rather than a good match? I don't know. <laughs> so all that, now, now I'm going to step on toes. Now you're going to have to have grace for me. Because add to that mix, you've got this split in the whole translation concept from word for word on one side and thought for thought on the other side, which is okay. Add to that mix paraphrases. What's a paraphrase? A paraphrase is someone who rewords the scriptures to make it more understandable to a certain group of people. It's not a translation, it's a rewording. It's almost like a commentary. If you read commentaries, commentators will take certain scriptures and they try and help you understand what it actually can mean and what's behind it, and, and it's a rewording. You need to understand this. Paraphrases have a great place, but they're not translations. Now you guys are going, okay, what's he going to get to? A paraphrase can be very helpful as long as we realize it's not a translation. Oswald Chambers once said, beware of bartering the word of God for a more suitable conception of our own. Dr. Michael Heiser said, biblical theology, by definition, comes from the biblical text. Though, not from Christian history or the writings of Christians about the Bible. So what are some paraphrases? Eugene Peterson's The Message. How many of you have ever read Eugene Peterson's The Message? Really, really wonderful, as long as you realize it's a paraphrase. Another one, very common now, is the Passion Version. It says Passion Translation, but it's not. Okay? This is where I'm stepping on your toes. If it's offending you that I'm telling you it's not a translation, then you can talk to me afterwards. It is a paraphrase. And it can be good, but it's not a translation. Not of what God said, not of the original. Okay? Uh, someone said to me, but wasn't the Bible originally written in Aramaic? And I want to tell you, it wasn't. It was written in Hebrew and Greek. For those of you who have a Passion Translation or version, it's a good paraphrase, but the Aramaic that, it, that it's often refers to in that version was a Syriac text uh, called the Peshitta that actually was completed 450 years after Jesus. And it was a translation to the Aramaic from the original Greek and Hebrew. So you don't take the translation and then go back and change the original. Those of you who are old enough who've seen uh, Michael Keaton in Multiplicity says you don't clone the clone. And that's what happens when you take a translation and then you take the word that almost matched up well 
and go back and change the original based on the word that almost matched up. You with me? You still love me? Good. Let me give you an example. John 14, 16 says, and I will give you another, the Father will give you another helper, comforter, counselor. The word is parakletos, one who comes alongside, who helps. Unfortunately, the Passion Version says, I will give you another Savior. Because that word parakletos, when translated into the Aramaic 450 years later, didn't quite match up, and it matched up with a word that part of that word's meaning means someone who actually saves someone or redeems someone comes alongside not only to help but to save. So the translator's taken that portion of that word and gone back and changed the original. Because that concept is not in the Greek word parakletos. But if you read that alone, it says he'll give you another savior. I want to ask you, if we're not aware that that's a paraphrase and we're teaching that as a translation, in 10 or 15 years, what are the young people going to be preaching? Two saviors? Jesus wasn't sufficient? So God gave us another one? What's behind the battle for truth? There's a spirit of deception and there's a spirit of truth. You still with me? Yeah. It would take a deep breath. I have to keep looking at my phone. I normally have a watch, but uh, we're doing some work at our house, and I had a bunch of sheets of plasterboard leaning against the shelf, and I had opened up a tin. I thought I had a, a tin of water-based varnish, and when I opened up, I realized it wasn't water-based. I had picked up, by mistake, oil-based varnish. So I was trying to get a brush from the shelf behind the plasterboard. So I moved the plasterboard out, and I was trying to reach there, and it shifted too far, and it knocked me flying with my can of varnish going everywhere uh, in the garage. And uh, it got on my watch. I didn't realize till this morning when I went to change the time, because it's, it's daylight savings time, and all the buttons were stuck. <laughs> I cleaned it off, but now I can't change the time. My watch works fine. It's just an hour off, and I can't change it. <laughs> exactly. I'm just going to put it in the drawer six months from now. It'll be great. The funny part of that is because I thought I had water-based varnish, I had no mineral turpentine, so nothing to clean it up with. So I had it all over me, all over my hands, all over everything, and, you know, it's, it, you can't get it off. So I decided I'd better go to the store and get some turpentine with this sticky varnish all over me. <laughs> so I put a rag on my steering wheel because everything I touched I stuck to, <laughs> and, uh, and I drove down to the store, and by the time I got out of Bunnings, I couldn't move my fingers. <laughs> they were all stuck together. So I took my rag and I walked in and I got the middle turpentine right there on the paint counter. 
Didn't even pipe for it. Just started pouring it on the rag and cleaning my hands up because I couldn't get my wallet out of my pocket. <laughs> so I guess I should just leave my phone here. What's our conclusion? Our conclusion is this. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> Do not take the lid off. The, yeah. Conclusion is this. The word is what God says. It lets us know what he's really like. See, unfortunately, many of us were taught about God before we ever started reading the Bible. When I became a young teenager, I began to read and went, wait, I've been taught all these things, but the Bible doesn't actually say that. Wait, where did this idea come from? What does the Bible actually say? What he says he is like is what's important, not what others say he is like, not what others would like him to be like. Many of us have this concept that my image of God, he must be like this. We're starting with us and our imagination and saying this is what God must be like rather than starting with God who says this is what I am like. So the word actually lets us know what he's really like. As A.W. Tozer said, one of the most important things about you is what you think of when you think of God. Second thing it does is it guides or illuminates our way. Psalm 119, verse 105, says your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. It's important when you realize that none of us have experience in life before we get there. When you were, became a teenager at 12, you'd never been a teenager before. When you became a parent, you'd never been a parent before. Contrary to Eastern religion, you didn't live life prior to this one. And you can't go back and draw on experience from a previous life. So everything we do is new. Now we have people who can help us, but we have the Word of God that is a lamp. It tells us, how do we do this? How do I treat my wife? How do I raise my kids? How do I run a business? It doesn't tell me the actual practical things of this, but it tells me what kind of ethical approach I should have. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. I had a friend who used to work in the insurance industry, and he finally quit because they were told they'd never paid any claim in less than 90 days, and they were told to just lie. Tell them it's checks in the mail, uh, it's in accounting. Bottom line is that everything was there to to pay the claim, but they would hold on to the money because there was a lot of money involved. Interest was huge, so their practice was just to play to out lie to people. And he finally said, I can't do that. 
But if you're part of the world, the pressure in any business is to do whatever it takes. But the Bible is very clear. It says this is how you treat people. This is how you treat your wife. This is how you treat your kids. It protects us, and it also gives us a view of the future. Thirdly, the Bible protects us from mixing our own desires with what God is saying. See, the Bible actually is the grid. What God is saying by his spirit today is never going to be contrary to what God has said in his word. It's God-breathed. God's consistent. So what happens? Well, today, sometimes what we're hearing God say gets mixed with some of our own desires or ideas. I used an illustration. I didn't prepare it this morning, but you can use your imagination. Pretend I have a pitcher of absolutely perfectly pure water, and I have a glass. The glass represents you, and the pitcher represents what God's saying, the anointing of the Spirit. But if there's one drop of ink in the bottom of that glass and pure water's poured in, what comes out might be slightly tainted. Doesn't mean that God got it wrong. It means sometimes I've mixed a little bit about what I think God's saying with some of my own desires or my desire for you. I think God wants to bless you. I really love Johanna and Fiona, and I want God to bless them, and so God says something, and I kind of mix it with that, and it comes out a little bit different than what God said. Sometimes the intent isn't to make it different or deceive. It just gets mixed up in there. So what do we have? We have the Word of God that gives us a grid to measure that through. You say, why is that necessary? I want to give you some quotes from people I've counseled over the years. One young couple came to me and said, God said we can sleep together before marriage. Did God say that? No. Because it's totally contrary. What said that? Their flesh? God said I don't have to be faithful to my wife. From a pastor. Did God say that? Absolutely not. How do I know? Because what God has said is recorded for us. God said I can take that money because I have a need. God said I could steal because I have a need. Did God say that? Of course he didn't. How do you know? Because it's totally contrary to what God has said. So what? when faced with that, what's the conclusion you have to draw? That they've misunderstood what God was saying. They've mixed it with their own desire or their own flesh or something else, but they're using God as an authority. God said I could sin. I want to tell you, God didn't say you could sin. So the word protects us from mixing what he's saying with our own desires and getting off base. 
If some teacher says he's never, not read the Word for 13 years, I'm going to tell you he's on the way to getting off base. It's not my revelation. It's what God said. I actually had a lady tell me certain scriptures. She had, this is my revelation God gave me about this scripture. She shared it with me, and I said, you know that that's not what that scripture actually means. It was her revelation. I said, but that's not what that scripture, I'm not saying your revelation isn't somewhere else in the Bible, but it's not in that scripture. Never saw her again. See, there's something that happens when we say what I think it should say is more important than what it actually says. See, we've, the lie of the enemy is that truth becomes subjective rather than objective. There is an objective truth. What God says, his word is truth. Not what I want it to say. What happens if there's no objective truth? Pretend that I wrote to an uh, NBL basketball team and said, you should hire me because I'm three meters tall. I just defined a meter by a third of my height. Why not? Why can't I define it that way? Because there is a, an objective reality. There, and the, the Bureau of Weights and Measures, there is a place that says this is what a meter is, and everything conforms to that. Or you go to hang a door, and the door jam is leaning like this. And it doesn't work. And you say to the guy who hung the, the door jam, that door's not straight. He said, yes, it is. I determine what's straight. No, no. We've got something called the spirit level. Bubble level. You get out and say, this is what, or a plumb line. This is what straight is. There is an objective reality. There's an objective truth. It's not just what I want it to be. It's what is. For thousands of years, up until about 40 years ago, insanity was defined as a not connecting with the reality of what exists. Now we've changed truth to say reality is whatever you want it to be. We've got a whole lot of insane people. <laughs> okay, moving right along. I better finish here. Bottom line is we want to be fully word and fully spirit. We want to move in the anointing of the spirit. We want to see the breakthroughs that God's doing, and he is. There's some wonderful things, but at the same time, we want to be fully word. What does the Bible say? Not what I wanted to say. What did God say? 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself. Approve to God a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's written to every believer. Study the word. Learn the word so that you have a basis for recognizing deception and error. That you can say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Something about that just doesn't fit. Let me go back to what the 
does the Bible say? Now, there is an anointing of the Holy Spirit that is in uh, synergy with the Word. There is something about the anointing that teaches you the Word. So there's something of the Spirit in you when somebody preaches something that isn't Bible, isn't the Word. There's something that just kind of goes inside. When someone preaches the truth, there's something in you that says, ha, ah, that's the Spirit of God. So the Word is not contrary to the Spirit by any means. The Spirit is actually working with us to confirm the truth of the Word. If we learn to, to listen to it, if we're more in tune to the Spirit than we are to our own flesh, our own desires. You know, Ezekiel 16 says that the prophets prophesied out of their own heart. There's a sense that we can say God is saying something when it's not actually God, it's actually us. It's my desire for someone. It's when someone says to a young couple, God said you're to marry that person. That's not God. It might be their observation, it might be their desire, but why would God say to me, who Josh should marry. I have nothing to do with it unless I'm trying to control Josh. Are you still with me? Sorry, I'm getting sidetracked. Every one of us has a responsibility to know the Word. You don't have to be a theologian to read the Bible. When I studied uh, in university, I actually studied Bible. Uh, I have been reading the Bible for a couple years now. Uh, but one of my key professors said, read the Bible first. I thought that was simple. But what I was saying is before you read commentaries, before you read what other people say the Bible says, before you read books, before you read anything else, read the Bible. It's the Word of God. Not what someone else says it should say or it does say, what it actually says. Let me encourage you. Don't be that guy who hasn't read the Bible for 13 years. If it's gathering dust on your shelf, get it out and say, Holy Spirit, I want revelation. Show me as I read. Just like we were singing earlier. It's not in a vacuum. It's in the place of Scripture. Hey, Amen. Could you stand? Of the Amazon. The mouth of the Amazon is about 320 kilometers wide. There's a couple islands in it, but the largest space without any island is 120 kilometers. That's how wide it is. Now, that'd be from here to where? 120 kilometers. Bernie? Okay, so from here... To Bernie is the mouth of the Amazon. It's about 200,000 cubic meters of water per second travel out the Amazon. Travels at about three to four kilometers an hour. What in the world does this have to do with the word you're saying? Hey, get there. If you go fishing and you leave the, the bank and go out in a boat in the Amazon, it seems like you're in a lake. 
because you have no reference points. You can get so far out you can't see shore. It seems like you're in, but you're actually moving. And if you spend 10 hours there, you're going to be 30 to 40 kilometers out to sea and never realize that you moved. They say there's so much water moves out of the mouth of the Amazon that 500 kilometers out to sea, you can dip down and get pure, not pure, but non-salty water. Fresh water. It's not fresh that you would drink it because the Amazon's terrible. Uh, but, but you get fresh water. 500 kilometers. So you can actually, we have a whole culture today that is slowly floating down river when it comes to the Word of God because we, we haven't given any reference points, any anchors to stop us from moving. The anchor is the authority of the Word of God. If you need some prayer, there's be some folks who'd love to pray with you. Some of you are needing some breakthroughs. Ask as you pray, uh, Diane told me her nephew has just been put on life support in Hobart. He had some, uh, some brain problem. I'm not sure exactly what. They're not sure. That they don't know what. But uh, some of you, if you join with her and pray. But the rest of you, some of you are seeing breakthroughs, but we're still believing for breakthroughs. Uh, we'd have some folks who'd love to pray with you. Let's read the Word. Okay? If we're going to be mature, the stature of Jesus, we're going to have to actually be based on the Word of God. Jesus said he did nothing of his own authority. Lord, thank you that you've given us not only your spirit, but you've given us your Word. And Father, we say as a people, we want to be people who are fully spirit. We want to enjoy the moving of the spirit and the supernatural, but we want to be people who are fully based on the Word as well. We realize that there's no incongruity, there's no uh, opposition between the Word and the Spirit. We want to know you as you really are and your ways. Give us that revelation. In Jesus' name, amen.